This is Truth Encounter, and with the rise of militant religious sects even in our homeland, questions about the idea of holy war are very serious. Our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wordson, begins our study today by sharing his desire to create a freedom to talk together about even the difficult questions of faith. He then goes on to share some of his deep feelings about the blood-stained history of the Crusades, Inquisitions, and so-called religious wars that continue to destroy thousands of lives. Are there any biblical answers? Probably the greatest burden that I have about the evangelical church today is that we treat families of believers kind of like McDonald's. We like McDonald's for a while, and then we like Burger King for a while, then we like Denny's for a while, and we just kind of move around, but we never really connect. And my prayer is that we'll really begin to connect as a group of brothers and sisters in Christ. The second thing that I'm really burdened about, not only that connection and that accountability that we need to have to one another, but I think it's time for me to really explain why we do what we do. I want to share something with you. If I wanted to, to really be a popularizer, if I wanted to try to, you know, to tickle your ears about some of the most relevant topics, I'd never speak on Deuteronomy chapter 7. If I had my druthers, this is one of those sections of scriptures that I'm sure that if I was going through thinking, what's really going to touch, you know, what's going to really capture their attention, Deuteronomy 7 wouldn't be there. You say, Dave, why are we going to study it? Because one of the things I want you to realize is that we believe that this is the God-breathed Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. And one of the most important responsibilities, when I, was, when I was ordained for the ministry by the Holy Spirit, when I was given the gift of teaching, the focus of that gift is to open up every single word of the Scripture to you and to get you to interact about it and get you to think about it. And that's what we're going to do. And I want to tell you something about that interaction. As we look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, the issue is not what I think about it. One of the atmospheres that I'd really like to create among the family of believers, it doesn't make a bit of difference the way that I interpret Deuteronomy 7 or the way I interpret Ephesians chapter 2. What's important is what God is saying through that text. And I want every one of you to realize that the Holy Spirit is here. And if you've invited the Holy Spirit into your life, if you've been born to get into God's family, then that Holy Spirit wants to teach you. And what he's concerned about it is to convict you, is to powerfully put his finger on some things in your life. He wants to encourage you. He wants to communicate the love of the Lord Jesus. I want you to get that separated a little bit from what I do. One of the things that you as a family of believers more than ever this week should understand is the danger of following an individual. I don't want you to follow me. I want you to question me. I don't have any trouble with someone saying, David, I don't understand at all what you said. Rather than that being a negative thing, that's a good thing. You have the freedom to do that. Call me. Write notes. Ask questions. That's what's going to make our communication together alive. It's what's going to help us to attain to the unity of the faith. And it's very important for you to capture, capture a vision of that, 
Otherwise, we fall into the, you know, like, I like the teaching I don't, I like this, I like that. That's not what it's about. What it's about is the tremendous opportunity we have of listening to the Holy Spirit breathe out to us through the Word of God and confronting us to the truth. You say, Dave, why are you spending so much time in the introduction? Because we're going to talk about one of the most confused subjects down through church history that's ever been given. It's holy war. Holy war has been used in church history to uh, call the crusades. A great churchman got up and called the young people of his day to a holy war to, to throw the Muslims out of Jerusalem. Thousands of young people responded and they marched from Europe into the Middle East and they fought the armies of Islam. And in the meantime, they often went through totally innocent villages that were totally unaware of what was happening at all, and they slew them by the hundreds. But it was all done in the name of God. The Spanish Inquisition, that wasn't just a Spanish Inquisition, it was all over the, uh, Europe during the Middle Ages. The Inquisition would burn heretics by the hundreds at the stake. Why? Holy war. Ecclesiastical churchmen, believed that they needed to control the beliefs of people. And they believed that it was very important to keep the church pure. And in, with deep devotion and with deep commitment to God, they burned heretics one after the other at the stake. Holy war. It's a holy war. And they rape and they pillage and they destroy children. But it's all done in the name of God. And so we have holy war. Now we have two reactions we have two reactions to these extremes. The liberal reaction to Deuteronomy chapter 7 is, let's just tear this page out of our Bible. In other words, this is an ancient text. This is a text that was given by Israel. You see, God breathes in some of the Bible, but not all of it. And Deuteronomy 7 is your basic passage where you have nationalistic Israel giving a chapter on why they invaded the promised land and why they exterminated the Canaanites. And therefore, it's just, it's just ancient patriotism that went amok, and so we don't need to listen to it. That viewpoint has profound, a profound input into our modern viewpoint towards Israel. Because those same theologians that will say that Israel was misguided when they took the land under General Joshua, also will say that they are misguided to be in the land today. And lest you think what we're doing is not very important, is it's this kind of thinking and teaching that eventually has incredible power politically. You see, President Clinton was taught by a pastor that when the scripture talked about nephesh, when it talked about a living soul, that that's when life began. According to Genesis, that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And President Clinton was taught that, so based upon his interpretation of the word of God, the life of a baby doesn't begin until it takes breath, not at conception. You think that doesn't have political implications? You think that that teaching of the scripture which forgets about the fact that the book of Exodus said that when a woman was carrying a child, if you hurt the child while it was in her womb and the child was lost, it lost its life, 
that the person that did that would face the same punishment as a murderer, which is a totally different orientation from the word of God about when life begins. And so the debate rages, and I believe very strongly that life begins the moment that that little one is conceived in the womb of a mother. I believe according to Psalm 139 that God intricately begins to weave that child together. Contrary to what our society thinks, we are in one level, we are in a, in a society that doesn't think that religion's very important. We don't think that the teaching of the Word of God is that important. We kind of get caught unaware. It's almost like we're blindsided when suddenly we wake up and realize that the whole world is really vitally interested in all of these moral and ethical values. And what the passion of my heart is, is to help you to think clearly and biblically about what is happening in the world, what's happening in your life with the Lord, and what's happening in our life together. And so I use it as an illustration to show you how what we're going to do as we study the Word of God really does have influence, tremendous influence. David Koresh, for example. The basic implication has been, don't read the book of Revelation. David Koresh read it, and those seven seals, those seven seals that David Koresh read is what caused the Holocaust down in Waco. So the implication is don't read the book of Revelation. Is that what you believe? Do you know what the seven seals really are? First of all, you know that chapter begins, Revelation 6 begins. You know who has the right to open the seals? Not David Koresh. You know who alone has the right to open the seals? You know what Revelation 4 and 5 was about? It's about the worship of the lamb that was slain. Only Jesus Christ has the, has the right to open the, the seals of destiny. The reason that Satan hates those seals so much is they describe how he's ultimately going to end up. They describe how history is ultimately going to end up. And the first seal is the rider on a white horse. Jesus opens the book and, and, and begins to read to us what's going to happen. The first seal is not the Messiah, but it is a false Messiah. It is a rider on a white horse that rides forth to deceive. He's even deceived many biblical critics. He produces death. He produces famine. He produces judgment because of his sin, because of his lie. Once again, it's illustrating the power of a false interpretation to bring people to their death. That's what I want you dads to get a hold of. It's what I want you moms to get a hold of. I want you to realize that what we do when we study the Word of God together is intensely serious. Life and death is in the issue. I had a young man say to me, Dave, how do I know not to follow David Koresh? How do I know that he wasn't the Messiah in the early days? Anyone that knew just a little tiny bit about this precious revelation from the true Messiah can know in a minute that that was a false promise, a false Messiah. Never fall into that kind of deceit. And so as we open the page of the Word of God, the commitment of my heart is, is to open up every single page of this book and to slowly but surely try to help us to understand it together and understand how to make it live by the Spirit's guidance in today's world. As we open up to the idea of holy word, therefore I believe that we can't just tear out Deuteronomy chapter 7. Instead, we need to open up to it, and let's do that. Open up to Deuteronomy chapter 7, and we begin with verses 1 through 6, which spell out to us an incredible command by the Lord God of heaven. And it is a command for the children of Israel to invade 
the land of promise, the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to exterminate those who are living in it at the present time before Joshua goes in to take Jericho and Ai and Bethel and the different cities. Look at it, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, notice who brings them into the land. It's God. Who's their king? God is their king. This is a people, the ancient Old Testament people were a people, a nation that was a nation because of God's command. The Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations. And it gives us the seven nations. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Seven nations larger and stronger than you. In other words, from a human standpoint, the Israelites are not going to be able to take the land. The initiative of God is of God. The command is of God. These seven peoples represent people that uh, the vast majority of them came down many centuries before from Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, and they came down like uh, they hit the old Hittite empire, kind of fragmented, and these different people, there was a large people movement, and these different seven nations gathered together in this land between the great empires of the ancient world, Mesopotamia and Egypt. And the Lord is telling them, the children of promise, that it's now time to deal with these nations. Look what he says in the next part. Make no treaty with them. In verse 2, when the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand, you have defeated them, you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Why? God gives a command. Why shouldn't the children of Israel intermarry with the Canaanites? Because they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will be quickly destroyed. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, burn their idols in the fire. Why? Because you are a holy people. You are a distinct, set-apart people for the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. I want you to listen very carefully. Israel in God's plan for the nations is a special treasure from the Lord. If you want to know what is happening in the flow of history, it's about Israel. Now that doesn't mean that you as a group of born-again believers are not important. You're the bride of Christ. We are intimately associated with the Lord. In eternity, there will be one people of God. As God writes the plan of redemption, it focuses on the Messiah Jesus who was Jewish and he became a Jew that died for the sins of the entire world and the body of Christ is a worldwide, multinational, multi-race group they are all precious in his sight. But the Bible also teaches that from a national standpoint, God has chosen for the Israelite nation to be his nation, a special treasured possession for him. And he's disciplined them. All of the history of the sacred writings, the whole Old Testament scripture is about God intimately dealing with this nation. Now, the plan is not exclusive. Eventually, God wants to write and reach out to all the people of the earth, but he does it through this nation Israel. And that's why what's happening in that land between the rivers, that little land of Israel, is so significant. It's why you always want to keep your eyes there. 
Now, I want you to think about some of the troubling things about these verses that I just read. First of all, it calls for the destruction of their churches. It calls for the destruction of, of all their paraphernalia, their altars, their columns, their statues. How in the world could God ever command that to be done? Now, in our, this is really tough for us in the modern world because in the modern world, one of the most important things to us is toleration. In other words, we need to be tolerant. And in reacting against some of the horrible atrocities that have been done in the name of religion, in reacting to that, our idea is that we need to just let anything happen. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to begin to think. In order to understand what God is doing here, you need to understand something. There comes a time when religion is a disguise for just immoral, immoral, cruel violence. There comes a time, you see, even in a free society, and if any group of people should understand that, you should understand that now. Our national government has just gone through agony, horrible agony, trying to figure out this dilemma. You see, the scripture says in Romans chapter 13, the government doesn't bear this sword in vain. If I threaten my family, I'm the leader of my family, but if I threaten my family, perish the thought that I would ever do that. But if I begin to abuse my family physically, spiritually, emotionally, sexually, if I begin to abuse my family, the scripture says that the evildoer should fear the sword. And Romans 13 says, if you're an evildoer, then you need to be afraid of the sword. Now, I want to ask you that you see that the justification for that is that there's a Lord God in heaven who's ultimately controlling all things, and that Lord God of heaven is the one that ordains that a properly instituted governmental authority has the right to bear the sword. What does a society do when they're not sure God's even there? What do you do in a society that's not sure there's anything morally absolute? What do you do with a society that isn't sure it's, it's wrong to be sexually immoral? How can a government that isn't sure what moral standards are, isn't sure what the law is, we change the law every time we turn around, what do you do? How do you deal with something like that? And brothers and sisters, I want you to understand something. You have just begun to see the beginning of where the rejection of an absolute moral authority begins to lead. It leads to anarchy everything goes because deep in the american soul we want to say i can do whatever i want to do if it makes me feel good it's what i believe then that's what rules there can come a time when religion a person's religious beliefs can just be a cloak for blatant violent sin and when that happens the ordained rulership that God has given within history, within governments, will flow and produce justice. And it's tragic. It's awful. But I want you to understand that there does come a time sometimes in history where evil becomes so intense, where in the name of God such atrocious things are done that the Lord God of heaven says, that's it. And those are very hard choices for policemen, for soldiers, for nations, for governments, they're very, very hard. Now, you say, Dave, what are you talking about? In the ancient Near East, the worst, most abominable religion going was the Canaanite religion. These seven nations, 
and the paraphernalia that's represented was from the pit of hell. In fact, one of Dave Lowry's associates, the Dallas Theological Seminary, the fellow that's the head of the whole Old Testament department, was working on a PhD dissertation in Ugarit literature. Ugarit is one of the ancient cities of the Canaanites. And as he was working on this material, now there's several other things that entered into this, but one of the things that, that disabled him from, from continuing his dissertation was the putrid pornography and violence and twistedness of this Canaanite literature. They worshipped immorality. They would take little babies, they would take little babies and, and, and put them in the arms of an idol and they would burn the little babies. You read in the prophets, don't give your kids to the fire. You read in the kings, you read about the, Lord, the prophets crying out to the kings of Israel, do not sacrifice your kids to the Kamash, to the gods of Moab, to the gods of the Canaanites. Do not do it. And what, what, what we've got to understand is that as you read the literature about this Canaanite faith, it was from the pit of hell. It was violent, it was cruel, it was destructive. The goddess that they worshipped was the goddess of, of lust, and she was the goddess of war. She was the goddess that would, that would cause young men and young women to have multiple relationships without any kind of covenant vows. And she was the goddess who would then pledge nations into bloody destruction of one another. No conscience, just brutal, hardened warfare. That was the Canaanite worship. And it gets much more intense than that. And by the way, that what God is calling attention here is that this Canaanite faith was like a cancerous religious malignancy. I mean, it was, it was, it, it was virile. It was going to infiltrate God's chosen people. It would snuff out their ability to worship the Lord. And so that was the reality. And I want to share something. You say, well, did God just suddenly zap these people? In other words, did God just suddenly send General Joshua in and, and that was it? They were gone? No, that's not what happened. The scripture teaches that God waited over 400 years. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, in a vision that God gave to Abraham 400 years before the passage that we're studying, in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord God told the father of this nation this, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, and it illustrates God's long-suffering, his gentleness. It says this, in verse 16, in the fourth generation, and you work out the time period that works out, in this case, a generation stands for about 100 years. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Abraham received this vision in the promised land. The Lord predicts that they're going to go down to the land of Egypt for about 400 years, but then they're going to be brought back to this promised land. Now, notice what it says. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. I want you to turn back and look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 that we just read, and one of the nations is the Amorites, and that word Amorites is a word that can be used for all the Canaanite nations. This is what I want you to understand. The Canaanite religious immorality and violence was just beginning to stink. It was just beginning to become virulent in the days of Abraham. God sent Abraham, one of the great patriarchs of the Old Testament, and the, and the scripture teaches us that he, that he proclaimed the word of God 
He would, he would have meetings underneath trees and he would proclaim to the people the message of the true God. Remember the story about the Shechemites and how Shechem, the prince, got involved with Dinah and he had relationships with her and then he wanted to marry her and you have this whole story of immorality in Genesis chapter 34 in its very early form. An idea is that like, you don't have to make a promise to a woman that you're going to marry her, that you're going to be with her. You don't have to publicly declare it. You can just, if you want her, you can just take her and then work out the negotiations later on with her mom and dad. That's what Canaanite worship was all about. And in that case, it led to the extermination of that whole town. And that incipient Canaanite worship began to take a hold. And that craziness and that living just for, for the drive of lust and, and living just for violence began to take a hold. But God waited 400 years. He took his children of Israel away and he waited. And these nations just sat there smoldering, going deeper and deeper into their immorality. From the internet to the latest offerings of Hollywood, immorality is worshipped as a goddess in our culture. Gang war, shootings, and murderous violence have become the accepted norm. If God called for the just extermination of the Canaanites who bowed before the gods of lust and cruel violence in Joshua's day, what is the court of heaven saying about our present civilization? The New Testament closes with the book of Revelation, which reveals that there will come an ultimate holy war against those who oppose the true God. But it is important for us to realize that this war against the Antichrist is initiated from heaven, not from earth. As followers of Christ, we must not pick up the sword of steel but the sword of the Spirit, which today declares a message of forgiveness to all who trust in God's Son. God's holy war against our sin was soothed by the offering on Calvary. There is no reason for you to pay for your sin with your own blood. Jesus has already in love shed his own. Even a modern, immoral, and violent Canaanite can experience God's mercy and love when they trust in the Son of God. Why not surrender to Christ's love for you today? Dave will be concluding this study of Holy War from Deuteronomy 7 on our next broadcast.